Welcome to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast with Greg Kokel and Amy Hall. Morning, Amy. Good morning, Greg. All right, you ready for the first question? Sure. This one comes from Asif Shirazi. How come it's said Jesus is the first to rise from the dead? Shouldn't it be Lazarus whom he resurrected? Well, there's a difference between Jesus' resurrection and the other resurrections, because actually it wasn't just Lazarus, but there were others that Jesus raised, and even prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah, or Elisha, I kind of get the two mixed up because their names are so similar, and they're back-to-back, you know. Uh, They raised the dead as well, okay? But in those cases, they were just resuscitated. They were dead, and they were alive, and then in in a normal physical body, they were still mortal, and then they died again, okay? What Jesus was, was the very first transformation of a human body from mortal to immortality, from perishable to imperishable. Now, those are words I got from 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul is talking about the necessity of that transformation since, as he puts it, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, flesh and blood, that phrase in that circumstance is just referring to normal human humanity. You know, he's not talking about uh, fleshly people in the carnality, sinful sense. He's talking about people who are just mortal. And um, we see this phrase used frequently in other passages, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, Jesus says to Peter. So what Paul is saying is, is we are now in mortal bodies, flesh and blood, and there is going to be a resurrection that will give us immortal bodies. We are in perishable bodies, flesh and blood, and there will be a resurrection so that we are imperishable. All of that is in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, And so what happened with the others is there was a, a, a return of life to their mortal bodies, to their perishable bodies, because all of them eventually died. Jesus was the very first one who had a mortal, perishable body that died and then was raised to an immortal, imperishable body. And so he is the he is the first fruits, so to speak. Uh, he is the first one that has been raised in that sense. And that's what we get to look forward to, that what God did with Jesus, and, and Paul mentions this in a number of different places, uh, what Paul did with Jesus as the first fruits, he will do with us, and he will raise our bodies like he raised Jesus, the immortal will put on, I'm sorry, the mortal will put on immortality, the perishable will put on imperishable when we, and we will be like him in that regard. And that's the promise. That's the restoration of the way things, uh, that's the, not just a restoration, like going back to Adam, we're going to be better than Adam's circumstance. So that's why Jesus Resurrection is referred to as, as the first, or the first fruits. Different ways of characterizing it, because in the unique sense that Jesus was raised, he was the initial as a not just a type but an example 
of what will happen to believers at the end of the age. Yeah, I think you covered most everything there, Greg. Jesus had already raised a girl. He had already raised uh, a boy. He, he'd raised a couple yeah, of that's people. Right. The widow's son, the Talitha Kumi one, you know, a little girl arise, the two different, Lazarus, right. Now, there was one thing, I, I'm curious what you think about this, because there, there were at least, well, there was one at least, a person who hasn't died, and that would be either Elijah or Elisha, who I'm not well, also <laughs> sure was. Also, the person who Enoch? walked with Enoch, too. Yeah. yeah, and that's odd, you know. So the question is, what happened there? So I'm assuming they haven't gone through this, uh, the kind of resurrection Jesus went through, because Jesus is the first. So what are you... <laughs> right. And and I don't... I'm not exactly sure. I have two thoughts, two mm-hmm. options, and of course we can't be dogmatic about it because it's uh, unclear. Um, for when Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about a generation of people uh, who will be alive when Jesus returns. Okay, so normally the way this process works is that we die, and then there is a resurrection of our bodies in a glorified state. And so for a season, we are in a disembodied state. That's the intermediary state where we are uh, when absent from the body is present with the Lord, but we are waiting for and yearning for that time when we will be whole and complete with our bodies, new bodies unified with our soul. Okay. Now, normally that happens death and then future resurrection, but for those people who are alive when Jesus returns, that they, they, in a certain sense, they get resurrected, transformed in that way without having died. Now, this is what a lot of people refer to as a rapture. We use that language that implies a certain timing also for this project. The New Testament doesn't use that word. It describes that event, even in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, the kind of rapture passages, as the resurrection. The key point I'm making here is not one of timing. It's just that there is going to be a generation of Christians who will be transformed, whose bodies will be transformed without having died first. So, with regards to Enoch and Elijah, it is, for one, possible that for them, that was a similar kind of situation, all right? That they were transformed and brought in to heaven uh, in a transformed sense, which means they would have received the same kind of resurrection body that Jesus seems to be the first example of. So what was unique about Jesus? On this way of thinking it is that Jesus died and then was resurrected, where these guys did die. So that would still leave Jesus on that view, that way of explaining it, uh, would still leave Jesus in a uh, in a unique position, individual position. Um, I'm not entirely satisfied with that, but I'm just saying that's a possibility. The other possibility is that they're that they were translated, as the text says, into heaven to be with God, um, still in a mortal, uh, uh, some kind of a specialized mortal sense or state. Uh, and notice they, they hadn't died, they just were carried up, and, um, and they will then also participate in, a, in the kind of resurrection that the non, 
dead Christians will experience at the return of Christ. And so that might be future. Well, then how are they kind of hanging out with God now? And I don't know, God's certainly capable of maintaining them. Uh, it is definitely a unique circumstance, and so we don't we don't really draw any broad theological conclusions on those unique circumstances. And it's not it's not permanent. They're not they won't stay the way they are forever. And everything else hasn't been changed the way everything else will be changed. So I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong to say that they could still be with God right now without having the same kind of body Jesus has now. Yeah, or else that here's another again this is all speculative but they were translated but both Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus at the um at the uh tra- transfiguration. Okay, well Moses' body was buried. So this had to be Moses' soul that was manifest there in a visible form, okay? And I don't suspect that Moses didn't have a body, but Elijah did have a body. I imagine they were all manifest there spiritually. So it could be that though though um, Elijah was translated, and maybe this is the same thing as Enoch, that they were taken from the earth, and their bodies were the discarded, and their spirits were with God, and they will receive a resurrected body sometime later. And I say that simply because, well, here it seems like it was the spirit, or soul, if you will, of um, Moses and Elijah, one who had physically died and one who had not physically died. It is their immaterial selves that are part of this gathering, so to speak, at uh, at the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. So, what well, the best we can do is we can look at clear case examples of things in Scripture and then try to put those things together and speculate on possibilities, but it's not—I don't think we can know for sure. Okay, Greg, just to close out this question, you had mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, and so I just wanted to read this part that talks about the differences between the bodies— uh, so he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Mm-hmm. Good. And the sown there, presumably, is is a, is a metaphor for being buried. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you he know. says that earlier in the yeah. chapter. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Good. Let's go to a question from Tracy from Minnesota. How would you explain in simple terms how Judaism and Christianity are related to someone who doesn't know much beyond the fact that they are two religions? Well, in a way, this is kind of easy to answer because um, everything that is true about biblical Judaism, properly understood, is true about Christianity, okay? Um, that is, uh, and I developed these ideas in the uh, the training that we have at Standard Reason called the Bible Fast Forward. There are eight sessions that are 50 minutes long with a 150-page workbook or um, 
you call it a, a like syllabus that goes with a total outline of everything. Highly recommend it, by the way, for understanding of these kinds of things. But all of these particular things, the Abrahamic covenant, for example, then the then the Mosaic covenant, and then the New Covenant, all of these things are Jewish covenants. They all have uh, ramifications for the nation of Israel. All right, the Abrahamic covenant, God's rescue plan for the world, Genesis chapter one, chapter twelve, verses one and three, um, and it was going to be through this nation He would create. Now, part of creating the nation is to is to provide a land and a people. <laughs> and a structure for the nation, and the land, of course, is is uh, Canaan. The um, the 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 people are the the multitude that developed uh, principally while they were in Egypt, <clears throat> and then the the structure is the Mosaic Covenant. This is how the people are structured, not just religiously, but also uh, civically or governmentally. There's a lot of that that's involved. So now we have this, we have this structure. Okay, now the structure, the religious aspects of it, created problems because people did not do what they were supposed to do, and uh, as you've mentioned before, that law was never really able to give the kind of life necessary. And the Book of Hebrews explains that there has been uh, um, a a um, a change which was predicted by Jeremiah chapter thirty one thirty one I will give you a new covenant lot like the old covenant which you broke the one I gave you at Sinai so this is all Jewish there's a new covenant coming the law will be written on their hearts Ezekiel talks about it as well it it, it entails comp- the end of the sacrificial system because there's complete personal and permanent personal forgiveness of sins. Okay, that's all part of the Jewish thing. Turns out that we learn in the New Testament that Gentiles have been kind of grafted in to that new covenant. We get the benefits of the new covenant, which is the giving of the Spirit as well, that was originating with Jews and was for Jews, but now Christians, I mean, sorry, Gentiles also can participate. Book of Acts has many references to this, and actually, and even Jesus, Jesus made references to his love for the Gentiles, and it, and it got Jesus and Paul in a lot of trouble with the Jews because they're very, very, um, you know, uh, in some ways, understandable, reserved about Gentiles being part of God's plan, even though this is what God promised through Abraham. Okay, so we have all of these things that are the Jewish, Jewish plan, God working. Except for now, as a Gentile, I get to be, pl- I get to be grafted in and included in the new covenant of forgiveness and relationship with God and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so, as I explained this to uh, many people, know who Dennis Prager is. Well, I used to be part of a radio program that he was on in. Los Angeles before he became a national figure, um, and uh, and in the eighties, and 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 my comment to him then is, there's every and of course my conviction that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now that is a difference. That's a difference because characteristically, the Jewish nation do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But the early Christians were all Jews, and what I said to. Dennis, as I said, 
everything about my spiritual convictions is Jewish. We got a Jewish Old Testament. We got Jewish promises, and from the uh, you know Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we got a new covenant. We got a Jewish Messiah. I said the only thing that's not Jewish about my views is this goy, referring to myself, and goy means Gentile, so which everybody laughed at. But but this is really true. So the the real distinction it is between New Testament. Uh, a new. I'm sorry. Between Christians nowadays, and principally, this is the, the big difference between Christians nowadays and and the Jews of the first century. Was that we believe Jesus is the is the Messiah, the promised Messiah? They didn't, and they still don't. However, since the first century, Judaism has changed quite a bit. And so now there are all kinds of differences. They don't do temple sacrifices anymore, not after 70 AD. The, the, um, the temple was destroyed, so now they have other kinds of rituals. And then you have Jews that are atheists. You have Jews that are moderately observant of the things that they were told to observe in the law. You, are, you have Jews that are, are uh, very observant, Hasidic. And then you have Jews that believe Jesus is the Messiah. So, so nowadays you do have variations, and it just depends on which group of Jews you're talking about. Although it's pretty well understood that that Jews in general don't think Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that, at least according to some, you if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you can't be a Jew, but you can be an atheist and still be a Jew. That's a little odd. There's a distinction between the ethnicity and the religious convictions. And this is why you can be an atheist and a Jew ethnically. But uh, in any event, if you're just talking about biblical Judaism, everything that a, a properly informed Christian believes is something that's grounded in the Hebrew Scriptures. So we believe the Hebrew Scriptures, and we also believe that there's a Messiah for everybody— and Gentiles are included, which is really hinted at in the very first big mm-hmm. co- covenant with the Jews, the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So on the one hand, there's a tremendous amount of similarity. Um, what Christians believe to us ought to be what the Jews believe as Jews, that their Messiah has come and things have changed, and now there's no longer any sacrifice, Book of Hebrews stuff. But since that time, there's been lots of changes in Judaism, mm-hmm. and they are. And those who take the religion seriously are that that do not believe in Jesus as Messiah are almost universally um, works salvation oriented. So the important thing to remember here is that this is one story, and the difference between say, Christianity and Islam, because Islam also will say um, that God, that Jesus was a prophet, Moses was a prophet. And they worship the same God. But 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 they reject things about Christianity, whereas as Christians, what we are saying is that we are the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, and we don't reject anything in the Old Testament. We don't say that something was changed, or we don't have an alternate New, uh, Old Testament 
we accept everything because this is all one story. You know, Paul talks about the Jews a lot. You mean the, the accounts between the Christians share the accounts basically with Jews, Jews, and so we are part of that entire narrative right. without without exception. Right. We're, and, it, biblically speaking. So, of course, uh, the Jewish people today reject Jesus as the Messiah. Right. I mean, not the ethnically Jewish people, but the religiously Jewish people reject him. But um, we we don't reject anything of what came before Christianity. Mm-hmm. We're we're saying that we see ourselves as part of this whole same story. It's one story. Paul says in Romans 9, he talks about um, the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all. There it is. Yeah. So he, and he talks more about that in chapters 9 through 11. He talks about our relationship to the, the Jewish people and um, and how those who are unbelieving are broken off and we're grafted in. But the idea is we don't see ourselves as something new. We see ourselves as the fulfillment. So, for example, when you look at, you know, Paul just mentioned the temple service. What Paul says in other places is that that this was a shadow of what was to come. So when you look at everything God commanded, it was pointing towards Christ. It was it, it was teaching them that they needed a sacrifice. It was teaching about what the sacrifice would be. It would be perfect. Um, it, blood would be shed for us. All these things that were reflected in the tabernacle and then later right. in the temple. Those were all shadows of Christ. So and, everything was leading up to and teaching them, preparing them for the fulfillment of this. Which plus, you Christ. see the details of that worked out in more precise terms in the book of Hebrews. Yes. Especially yeah. chapter 10. Yeah, and and in fact, he says the reason why Moses had to build it exactly according to the plans was because it was supposed to teach them specifically about the coming of Christianity, Mm -hmm. of Jesus, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess that's the easiest way to explain this. We Mm -hmm. see this as one story. We're not rejecting things that happened in the Old Testament. We're accepting them and seeing Christ as the fulfillment of what was promised to them. Right. Um, Paul also talks about Jesus being th- the fulfillment of his promises and grace to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So he he has um, he he saw this as being the fulfillment of what right. God had promised. Yeah. And Islam, regardless of their claims that that gospels are inspired and that um, the law was inspired uh, and that Moses and Worship the same God and the Jews, and they worship the same. Uh, the, the key here is that the story has changed radically. Their story is not the biblical story. By the way, if it was the biblical story, then Muhammad wasn't necessary. Muhammad brought something different, and that's why Islam is a different religion than Christianity and Judaism. And I mean radically different, even though they have they're monotheistic and they claim it's the same God. So one point. Second point is that uh that if you go to also to Ephesians two, you'll see that there, there's a fairly clear characterization of how God brings the Gentiles who were without God and without hope in the world into the covenant by removing the dividing wall 
which was the law. Now, notice I mentioned the Abraham covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then the new covenant. The new covenant supersedes the Mosaic covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 says that explicitly, and it gives things that were were foreshadowed, but now explicitly available. All right. And so it's not unusual for Paul to say in Ephesians 2 that that dividing wall of the law has been broken down. That's removed now so that the two, the Gentiles and the Jews, can become one new body, which would be the church, all under the provisions of the new covenant and the provisions of forgiveness and the promise of God. And this then becomes a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in which the Jewish nation turns out to be a blessings to all the goyim, is the word that's used there, all the nations, as it's translated. And just to add to something you just said about Islam, in Judaism, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to a Messiah. That was expected. Now, when you get to Hebrews, it says, up till now, we've had these prophets, but in these last times, God has spoken through Jesus, and there's a clear sense of this is the end. So when Islam comes and says they have another prophet and that things have been removed from the New Testament or things have been changed, you can see that there's not this connection. There's not this expectation of another prophet because things have been fulfilled. The story is complete. It, it is one story, and it's complete now. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Greg. And thank you, Tracy and Asif. We really appreciate your questions. If you have a question, send it to us on Twitter with the hashtag STRask. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 